Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. I have to tell you, just so you're in on it as well, first service is the first time that I have ever had the privilege of dedicating triplets. We had triplets, London, Logan, and Lincoln. And they were born August 4 of last year at 1020, 1022, and 1024. And we had quite a time. Uh, Lincoln was fascinated with the microphone and turned it every which direction, so I was constantly trying to get back. And then was Harrison. So we've had quite a morning. But you know, I have to tell you, forgive me for this excursus, but I just have to do that. I love having the children here. Just love it. I love what happened here. It's what they'll talk about with him when he's 15, 20 years old. <laughs> so we want them here, period. So the late Fred Craddock, great homiletician, said, there are two kinds of sermons that are difficult to listen to. Bad sermons and good sermons. Well, when a preacher hears something like that, you immediately want to say to him, can you expand on that? Can you tell me exactly what you mean by that? I was very curious about his thinking because I know that the only thing worse than listening to a bad sermon is preaching a bad sermon. <laughs> so what do you mean, Dr. Craddock? Well, here's one of the realities, and I think you would probably agree with this. When you sit down and listen to a sermon at a worship service and later assess, how was that in my life? I suspect that one of the ways that gets judged is whether or not it had any relevance to my life. Did it connect with my path? Did it speak to my challenges? Did it encourage my dark places? Was there some point of connection between the text and me? That's how I would assess a sermon. Does it connect with my life? With that in mind, it may be a little bit difficult this morning. Because the passage for today and the sermon that grows out of it, I'm afraid may not connect with some. It possibly may not be for you. For example... If you are a straight-A student, top-shelf student, you have always done well in school, you have won the teacher's awards, you've been on the dean's lists, this may not be for you today. Or athletically. If you are athletically gifted, if you could dunk a ball at 10 years old, if you can outswim all the other girls on the swim team, 
If you hold the record in your age category in the local marathon, you're used to winning. This sermon may not be for you. Or if you graduated from college and immediately started ascending the corporate ladder, if you've succeeded in life, if you've done well financially and in the business world and in your community life, if everything is coming up roses, it may not be for you. Because the truth is that young woman, that young maiden 2,000 years ago was none of those things. She was more than likely a wallflower, unnoticed, run-of-the-mill, blend into the crowd. So if you, on the other hand, are the person who slipped in just as class started and made your way to the last row and hoped no one would notice you, or if you're the one that comes to church and sits somewhere out as far as you can get from anyone else and just prays, please, please don't speak to me. If you've had struggles in relationships, in business, in other facets of your life, so you wonder, is there any way I'm ever going to be able to not only succeed, but even be used by God? Well, if that describes you, it might be for you today. The passage that we look at. The thoughts that are shared just might connect. As you know, we're in a series, five-part series. Today's the second part, the five prayers of Advent. Last week, we began with the first prayer of Advent. You remember that the titles are all in Latin because the Christian church over the centuries has named these five prayers by the first word or two of the Latin Vulgate version of the prayer. And so they have become known by those names. Last week, it was Fiat Mihi, God asking, will you? And Mary's response, let it be done to me according to your word. That can be summarized in one word. Her prayer, Fiat Mihi, was yes. Yes. This week, we're back for the second prayer, the Magnificat. This is a second prayer by the same young maiden, by Mary. It appears in Luke's gospel, the first chapter. As we move into the scene, we notice Mary. She would be easy to miss, I assume. After all, a young woman, early teen or mid-teen probably at best. She was named a name that was extremely common. In fact, one scholar points out that of the women that are named in Mary's first century world, of all the women that are named in that first century world, nearly half of them are named either Salome or Mary. So Mary could literally blend into the other Marys. Mary, 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 Mary. Which one is Mary? She must have been used to being in that place, used to hearing the role called Mary and eight other people answer, eight other girls answer right along with her. What is going to distinguish her? She's not the valedictorian. She's not the winner. She's not the one that stands out. It reminds me of a cartoon I saw of two penguins, two penguins standing up on a big block of ice, and they're looking out over a sea of identical-looking penguins. And one of those penguins turns to the other and says, you know what we need around here? What we need around here are some name tags. <laughs> 
Kind of reminds me of that. You just kind of blend in, Mary. There's nothing unusual, nothing outstanding about you. I love the way the writer Frederick Beekner captures just that reality. Beekner is actually writing about the passage we looked at last week. But the theme of what he writes has to do with this week's passage. So I want you to listen to Beekner's words. He's picturing the angel Gabriel in the visit with Mary. And here's what he writes. She struck him, struck Gabriel, she struck him as hardly old enough to have a child at all, let alone this child. But he had been entrusted with a message to give her, and he gave it. He told her what the child was to be named, who he was to be, and something about the mystery that was to come upon her. You mustn't be afraid, Mary, he said. As he said it, he only hoped she wouldn't notice that beneath the great golden wings, he himself was trembling with fear to think that the whole future of creation hung on the answer of a young girl. Mary. Mary, you're not outstanding. Mary, you would not be noticed when the list was made of the world's greats. Mary, you're rather common, but God has something for you. When we read her prayer, this second prayer of Advent, one of the things that we're going to notice is that this young maiden knows her family history. That's what one commentary says. She has clearly been deeply versed in the history of her family and of her people, maybe by the campfire at night, maybe at the synagogue, listening to the reading of the scrolls. But somehow, all of those experiences, especially experiences like the experience of Hannah, the mother of Samuel, had somehow inscribed themselves indelibly into Mary's conscience to her consciousness, so that when time comes to respond, she draws on all of that. You'll notice that we read that there are kind of two halves, at least two parts to this. The first part is Mary commenting on her gratitude for what is being done for her and to her. The other is her gratitude and gratefulness at what's happening with the larger picture of her people. So let's go to it. Luke's Gospel, chapter 1 beginning in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. When God decides to wrap himself in human flesh and enter into the incarnated human experience, he chooses to do so 
through the womb of a young woman. That young woman, upon realizing that, responds in this way. My soul magnifies the Lord. The Magnificat. My soul glorifies the Lord. She is praying out, singing out her wonder at what's taking place. Now, her prayer is very consistent with the entire Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke is a beauty, a masterpiece of writing. Luke was very careful. He tells us in the first four verses of the first chapter of the book, he was very thoughtful, he was very careful about what he selected and what he included because he wanted us to understand one important facet of the character and the person of Jesus. He wanted us to understand that he was moving in favor of those who had been losers, who had been pushed out, who had been marginalized, who had been forgotten. And Luke is true to that purpose. Have you paused to consider what we know because of Luke? When you walk out of church this morning, you walk east, just look a little bit to the northeast, and you will see what I would call the patron saint of Loma Linda University, the Good Samaritan. We would know nothing of the Good Samaritan were it not for Luke. Understand, we have named it Good Samaritan. Scripture doesn't name it that. Because in the world of Jesus, in the world of Luke, in the ancient Jewish mind, there wasn't a good Samaritan. That's our name. That would be an oxymoron, a contradiction in terms. It would be like us speaking of the virtuous prostitute. What? The anxiety-free medical student. Pardon me? Good Samaritan. What are you talking about? But we know that story because of Luke. Have you paused to consider that we know the story of that diminutive man who was so intent on seeing Jesus, Zacchaeus, that he threw dignity and decorum to the wind, pounding down the pavement and bruising his way up into the branches until Jesus stopped and looked up at this rejected sinner and said, Zacchaeus, guess who's coming to dinner? We wouldn't know that story, but for Luke. We wouldn't know of a prodigal staggering down the lane toward home, covered with the slime of the swine, stinking of sin, whose father races out to sweep him up to his, in his embrace. We wouldn't know that story, but for Luke. Because Luke is especially attentive to those times, those places, those ways in which Jesus speaks to those who are on the bottom rung of the ladder. But it's not just that. He also has some words for those who are on the top rung of the ladder. In fact, think about the different ways a sermon is described. Matthew, Sermon on the Mount. Luke, often been called Sermon on the Plain. Probably happened twice. But notice the contrasts. In Matthew, when it comes to preaching that sermon, the content of which is quite similar, but in some key ways is different. Matthew says, Jesus went up the mountainside, sat down, and taught his disciples. Luke says, Jesus went down the mountain to the plain, stood up, and taught the multitudes. So did he go up and sit down or go down and stand up? 
Well, maybe two different instances. But they both include beatitudes. But there are some key differences. In Matthew, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. It's a spiritual sermon. Luke, raw, earthy. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hungry. Period. And then he says, what he doesn't say over in Matthew, woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are filled now. Woe to you who laugh now. Woe. Well, it's been called the great reversal, the gospel of the great reversal. The kingdom of God turns things upside down, and it starts right at the beginning with this diminutive, no doubt quiet woman named Mary. Pray about those who are up and those who are down. In fact, Eugene Peterson puts it this way in his book, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places, the heart of Mary's prayer, as it was for Hannah's, Samuel's mom in the Old Testament, involves three great reversals in the way we experience the world when God conceives new life in us. God establishes his strength and disestablishes the proud. That's the first reversal that Mary underlines. God puts down the people at the top and lifts up people at the bottom. That's the second reversal. God fills the hungry and sends the rich away empty, the third great reversal. The proud, the powerful, and the rich are reduced to size. God, the downtrodden and the deprived are perceived truly, filled out in dimensions of majesty, wholeness, and dignity. Revolution, but in God's way, not ours, is on the horizon. What a prayer for a young woman. Great reversal. And she's saying, it's affecting me. It's doing something for me because I've never been top shelf. I've never been first choice. I've never been top of the class. That's never been me. And suddenly she says, I am finding out that my name is going to be etched into the annals of history. If you read her prayer carefully, I think you might agree with me that it could be summarized. The Magnificat could be summarized in one word. One word. Like last week, the fiat mihi, God's will you, can be summarized in one word, yes. This week, the Magnificat, I think, can be summarized in one word, and that word is a question. And I think this is the question. Mary says, me? Seriously? God, are you being serious? Me? That's the Magnificat. You, you sure you didn't mean uh, me? Forgive me, but it, it, it kind of made me think of, of all people, of Groucho Marx. Some of you, I never met Groucho, but some of you maybe did. Um, Groucho Marx, comedian, writer, television, movie star. Groucho Marx is said to have written a letter one day 
I did some nosing around trying to determine if it actually was him. There's pretty good reason to believe it was him, though some would contest that a bit. Those who say it was him even have a date and the, the persons to whom he wrote the letter. So Groucho Mark, in October of 1949, wrote a letter to the Friars Club of which he either was a member or had been asked to become a member. He wrote them a letter and said to them, I refuse to be a member of a club that would have me as a member. <laughs> I refuse to stoop that low. I will not be a member of a club that would have me as a member. Me? You kidding? That's a much more trite reality. But it's the same fabric. Me? The English playwright Dorothy Sayers says that God has three great humiliations. You remember this. The first great humiliation, says Sayers, is the incarnation. It's that reality which we celebrate at this time of year. God becoming flesh. God being laid in a manger. Mary, did you know? Sayers says that's God's first great humiliation. His second great humiliation, says Sayers, is the cross. When Jesus allows himself to be nailed to a cross and hung suspended between earth and sky, for all watching to gape and mock. Second great humiliation. Sayers says God's third great humiliation is the church. Me. You. God saying, I'm invisible to human eyes. I'm not present in visible bodily form in the world right now. But I am, and the way I am is through my people, the church. And Sayers says, how utterly humiliating for God. She may be on to something. Because the only appropriate way to respond when God says, you are my body, is for us to stagger backward, mouth agape, jaw slack, and say, us? Me? Are you kidding me? How can that possibly be? The Magnificat. Mary talking about the proud and the lofty and the humble and the lowly and that God is turning things upside down. He's acting in his people. He's accomplishing realities in the world. And then suddenly the realization is this is going to involve you. And it's as though she asks, me? Really? We're just so used to looking for the right people to do the job aren't we? We want the best, the brightest. We want the most gifted, the most talented. If you happen to be a student on this campus, you're playing intramurals and, and, and you're choosing your basketball team, who are you looking for? You're looking for people with height, people who can jump, people who can dunk, people who can block. That's who you want. If you're looking for somebody to help run your company, you're looking, where did they get educated? What are their tickets? What is their experience? What abilities do they have? Or if you're looking for people to admit to your institution of higher learning, 
You look for the best, the brightest. And on that front, this is Christmas after all. So at Christmas time, don't we gather together as, as family, pull the kids in, sit mom and dad down, maybe around the living room, around the kitchen table, around the fire, and read stories. I'd like to do that this morning. I suppose it's a story. It's not really a story, but it, it's a story. Written by Rebecca Samke, former admissions director at Dartmouth College. So her world was finding the best, the brightest, the most gifted, the most promising. Those are the ones in whom they were interested. She wrote an op-ed piece in the New York Times several years ago, April 4 of 2017, entitled, Check This Box If You're a Good Person. And I, I want to read to you what she wrote. So Rebecca Sabke, April 4, 2017, Hanover, New Hampshire. When I give college information sessions at high schools, I'm used to being swamped by students. Usually, as soon as my lecture ends, they run up to hand me their resumes, fighting for my attention so they can tell me about their internships or their summer science programs. But last spring, after I spoke at a New Jersey public school, I ran into an entirely different kind of student. When the bell rang, I stuffed my leftover pamphlets into a bag and began to navigate the human tsunami that is a high school hallway at lunchtime. <laughs> Do you remember that? Just before I reached the parking lot, someone tapped me on the shoulder. Excuse me, ma'am, a student said, smiling through a set of braces. You dropped a granola bar on the floor of the cafeteria. I chased you down since I thought you'd want your snack. Before I could even thank him, he handed me the bar and dissolved into the sea of teenagers. Working in undergraduate admissions at Dartmouth College has introduced me to many talented young people. I used to be the director of international admissions and am now working part-time after having a baby. Every year, I'd read over 2,000 college applications from students all over the world. The applicants are always intellectually curious and talented. They climb mountains, head extracurricular clubs, and develop new technologies. They're the next generation's leaders. Their accomplishments stack up quickly. The problem is that in the deluge of promising candidates, many remarkable students become indistinguishable from one another, at least on paper. It is incredibly difficult to choose whom to admit. Yet in the chaos of SAT scores, extracurriculars, and recommendations, one quality is always irresistible in a candidate. Let me just parenthetically remind you. This is the New York Times, not the Adventist Review. One quality is always irresistible in a candidate. Kindness. It's a trait that would be hard to pinpoint on applications even if colleges ask the right questions. Every so often, though, it can't help shining through. 
The most surprising indication of kindness I've ever come across in my admissions career came from a student who went to a large public school in New England. He was clearly bright as evidenced by his class rank and teacher's praise. He had a supportive recommendation from his college counselor and an impressive list of extracurriculars. Even with these qualifications, qualifications, he might not have stood out, but one letter of recommendation caught my eye. It was written by the school's custodian. Letters of recommendation are, <laughs> imagine this, all you students who are making your applications. Letters of recommendation are typically superfluous, written by people who the applicant thinks will impress a school. We regularly receive letters from former presidents, celebrities, trustee relatives, and Olympic athletes. But they generally fail to provide us with another angle on who the student is or could be as a member of our community. This letter was different. The custodian wrote that he was compelled to support this student's candidacy because of his thoughtfulness. This young man was the only person in the school who knew the names of every member of the janitorial staff. He turned off the lights in empty rooms, consistently thanked the hallway monitor each morning, and tidied up after his peers even if no one was watching. This student the custodian wrote, had a refreshing respect for every person at the school, regardless of position, popularity, or clout. Over 15 years and 30,000 applications in my admissions career, I had never seen a recommendation from a school custodian. It gave us a window into a student's life in the moments when nothing counted. The student was admitted by unanimous vote of the admissions committee. There are so many talented applicants in precious few spots. We know how painful this must be for students as someone who was rejected by the school where I ended up as director of admissions. I know firsthand how devastating the words we regret to inform you can be. Until admissions committees figure out a way to effectively recognize the genuine but intangible personal qualities of ap applicants, we must rely on little things to make the difference. Any prospective student, listen to the next two or three sentences. Sometimes an inappropriate email address is more telling than a personal essay. The way a student acts toward his parents on a campus tour can mean as much as a standardized test score. And, as I learned from that custodian, a sincere character evaluation from someone unexpected will mean more to us than any boilerplate recommendation from a former president or famous golfer. I find this next one funny. Next year, there might be a flood of custodian recommendations <laughs> thanks to this essay. 
But if it means students will start paying as much attention to the people who clean their classrooms as they do to their principals and teachers, I'm good with that. I'm happy to help start that trend. Colleges should foster the growth of individuals who show promise, not just in leadership and academics, but also in generosity of spirit. Since becoming a mom, I've also been looking at applications differently. I can't help anticipating my own son's dive into college admissions frenzy 17 years from now. But whether or not he even decides to go to college when the time is right, I want him to resemble a person thoughtful enough to return a granola bar and gracious enough to respect every person in his community. I think Luke would have appreciated that story because Luke was about much more than how talented you are, what grades you've secured, how much money you make, or what rung of the ladder you occupy. He was concerned about something else. Truth be told, it was more than just kindness, though kindness could have been part of it. He was concerned that people realize that just because you're at the top gives you no edge in the kingdom of God. And just because you're at the bottom gives you no barrier to the love of God. Because this is an upside-down kingdom. The great reversal. What is stunning to me is that a teenage girl knew that. That when she heard that news, she not only could go on about her family history and what God was going to do and where they had been and the great reversal, but she could speak it in such a way that 2,000 years later, we can summarize it with one word. Me? God, are you being serious? Me? Actually, maybe it shouldn't be summarized in just one word. Maybe it might take a few more. Because what she fully says is, Me? God, if you're serious about that, then the only thing I can say is my soul magnifies the Lord. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at LLUC.org.